episode 426 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you commercial-free by Steptoe and Johnson. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government, and the views we're about to express do not reflect those of our institutions, our clients, our friends, our family, not even our pets. Joining me for the News Roundup, first-time participant Richard Steenan, who's the editor of Security Current and founder of a cybersecurity analytics firm, IT Harvest. David Chris, who's the founder of Culper Partners, LLC, former assistant attorney general for the National Security Division at Justice. Mark McCarthy, who teaches technology, law, and policy at Georgetown and is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution Center for Technology Governance. And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, and the host and chief provocateur for today's program. David, I want to go back to a story we actually covered last week, but this is a big story and the reverberations are still coming. The decision by the administration to cut off a chip manufacturing capabilities to China has really disrupted a lot of relationships in ways that we're only starting to see now. Yes. So first, a little bit on the technical aspects of this, this being the cyber law podcast, and then on to the practical. So this is what is technically called an interim final rule issued by our good friends at the Bureau of Industry and Security at the Department of Commerce. And it is making a lot of amendments to the Export Administration regulations, and it is super complex. And so in a nod to the brevity of this podcast, not to mention the brevity of human life generally, I'll summarize with just a few broad points at the risk of missing some nuance. Everybody is advised to seek legal advice. And actually, I think Commerce has been doing a lot of outreach to U.S. companies and others that have a real interest in this. But the first thing to know about it is it's already in effect in many in many ways. It's an interim final rule, and so October is the month in which a lot of these elements and amendments take effect. Although, Stuart, you can submit comments until December 12th. So this is, you know, something on which you may want to opine. The motivation for all this obviously is concerns about China's work on advanced silicon computer chips. And in particular, their design and manufacture in service of the, you know, Chinese military and intelligence services. And that is consistent generally with U.S. military and national security policy, which I'll talk about, I think, later in the podcast, that sees China as the pacing threat for the foreseeable future. And you've seen some very strong language from Chris Ray here of the FBI about China's industrial espionage program. And recently, Jeremy Fleming of GCHQ, the UK Signals Intelligence Agency, gave a quite a strong speech about China. Uh, I am sure the US government hopes that you know there will be a bandwagon effect here among its allies. The heart of the rule is, or at least one of the most important elements of the rule, is this rule that US persons, that's citizens, green card holders, and US corps, support development or production of chips in China now need to get a license from the Commerce Department. And in a lot of cases, they're not going to get a license because a lot of these limits are under a presumption of denial policy, at least for Chinese-owned facilities. So if you have some you know, graduate student who came over here, got a green card and went back, that person is going to be prohibited from working there. I understand from news reports that BIS at Commerce did issue temporary general licenses for manufacturing chips and other items that are destined for use outside of China. And I gather Intel and Hynix got licenses to keep their Chinese facilities operating for now. So not clear sort of 
know exactly what kind of exceptions will be made to the general rules. The Koreans are going to get, the South Koreans are going to get exempted for yeah. their Chinese facilities and maybe with the restrictions that they export all of the product, which I, oh, suspect, to here, right. yes, I suspect that's going to be problematic for the Chinese government. <laughs> well, there's certainly a risk of retaliation. Yes. You know, these things tend to go tit for tat. And I will say, I don't think, I believe that at least many of these rules don't apply to what are called deemed exports. So if you have a Chinese person here, you know, a Chinese citizen national here, you, you know, that would normally be problematic to talk to them about certain of these technologies. And I don't think at least some of these rules reach that. So it's, it's, really focused on work in China. And they designated, informed listeners may recall the designation of Huawei quite some time back. And there's now 28 additional Chinese firms that have been added to that restricted entity list. So it's a pretty big, powerful suite of limitations, possibly subject to some exceptions and licenses in individual cases against the development, design, manufacture of chips in and for China. Very complex, but clearly very significant. And you're seeing all kinds of immediate reactions, Chinese companies pulling US persons off the line, companies that supply China or Chinese companies issuing, you know, amended earnings and other forecasts. But we're going to have to see how it plays out to understand fully sort of what its real effects are, and in particular, whether the Western allies pile on and add their own kinds of restrictions as well. Yeah. The impact on people who have green cards and U.S. citizenship, I think, is going to be pretty significant, assuming the Commerce Department intends to say you cannot stay in China and continue to ex do deemed exports. If they relax that, then maybe this decision to pull everybody off the line is an overreaction. But I agree that the the success of this or the failure at the end of the day is going to depend on whether other countries join in pretty much wholeheartedly. And the fact that they haven't so far is troubling. I, I don't know about you, David. I attribute the speed with which the government did this and their decision to do it without getting everybody on board. At first, I thought they just couldn't get everybody on board. Now, I think that they were spooked by the report that SMIC got down to seven nanometers and had been selling seven nanometer chips for six months without without making any noise about it at all. That's interesting. And that's a very, very big drop in the size of the lines. Yeah. You know, I was aware of that, but I hadn't connected the dots. I kind of foolishly just said, oh, look at the interesting, you know, coincidence in time of the new national security strategy and these rules being published. But you're probably right that there's a more substantive underlying motivation here. All right. And the FCC, it's worth pointing out, is going to ban all Huawei and ZTE equipment from the United States. Again, this would have been a very big deal if it hadn't happened at the time of the much bigger decision to cut off chip sales. Yeah, agreed. And they, as I said, I think they, they've added a whole bunch of like 28 Chinese companies to the restricted entities list. So they really do mean business here. Okay. I want to switch gears here. Richard, you really know the market for cybersecurity issues. And we talk about cybersecurity law a lot. We talk less about what's happening in the market. But I thought it was very interesting. The Dow, the Dow has gone to hell. It's down 20% or, or more. Tech is probably down 
30 or more. And cyber, it looks like from the reports I'm seeing, is up. We've got more cybersecurity unicorns probably this year than ever before. Does this mean cybersecurity is immune to the tech cycle, at least this time around? So great question, Stuart. But, you know, it's been 14 months since you started to see the, you know, the sky is falling warnings that the stock market's going to crash, buy gold now, etc. And I didn't believe it back then. It's, but that just tells you that I really don't understand stock markets. I held on to my few holdings in cybersecurity as they dropped 60% in value. And yes, the, you know, the top leaders, the Fortinets, Palo Altos, Zscalers, CrowdStrikes have done okay in the last couple of months, but they're still down 50 to 60% from their all-time highs. So this is mostly just startup fever that remains in cybersecurity? Yeah, startup fever is strong. You know, so I tracked 3,092 cybersecurity vendors, and I just completed looking at what they all did last quarter. For the most part, every single sector except one grew in headcount, which is the only publicly available data on private companies. And, you know, anywhere from 6% for the identity vendors, which is a lot because identity is a huge, huge space, right? Because that's where I put Oracle, for instance. And, and then the next one below that is API security, which is a booming subcategory of the entire industry. On top of that, investment so far this year, despite the warnings that, oh my gosh, you're not going to be able to get new funding and they're going to be down rounds, et cetera. And all the investors telling their portfolio companies to cut back on hiring. Other than a few, Cyber Reason is an outlier who announced they're going to have a 20% riff and a couple of others. Uh, most grew and continued to hire all the way through the summer doldrums when it's hard to hire people anyways. And the investments in cybersecurity had already been tracking at about $12 billion for the year. And the last quarter added an additional $2.1 billion in announced investments. Some of those, you know, obviously all those investments, the due diligence started months before, which means right now we're sitting at $16 billion in investment. Leaving aside last year, which was the all-time record of $26 billion, the previous all-time record was 2020 when $10 billion was put in. So we're already tracking at 60% higher than the 2020 numbers. I think we'll end the year at that you know, 16 to 20 billion kind of figure. So it's going to be a phenomenal year for the cybersecurity industry. So part of it is you know, people have to put money somewhere. Uh, right. Especially and if you're a VC. Yep. And it looks as though cybersecurity is going to be more durable than the, the metaverse, for example. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. The cybersecurity industry, well, the, the VC industry as a whole has $198 billion of dry powder, according to sources, meaning money they've already collected from limited partners and have to invest or they can't you know, earn returns on it. And it always seemed to me it's logical during downtimes that they should be investing more because you sh I heard once from my father, you're supposed to buy low and sell high. And certainly if valuations are going down, now's the time to invest because you have a five-year time horizon minimum on venture capital. So obviously, you know, the local downturns time-wise in the stock market don't really have much meaning when we've got a five-year time horizon. And, you know, I think there's a decent argument that startups are always going to do 
well in cybersecurity because there's always going to be a new threat. The old threats get taken care of, and then the the people whose tools take care of those old threats get wrapped up in a in some kind of roll up, and a commodity product comes out that takes care of that, and then. This, the North Koreans adjust and they find a new attack and you have to find a new way to respond to that. And that usually is a startup that, that really nails it. And so you're going to see startups just because we have an active adversary. Exactly. That's one of my strongest points I ever make is unlike every other tech industry in security, we have an outside driver and that's threat actors and, and the threat actors, you know, follow suit. If they discover a way to make money with ransomware, then everybody jumps on that bandwagon. If it was carding back in the day and they shift their focus to wherever they can get the best return on their invested time and effort. And they're always new threat actors. I used to track, you know, first it was exploratory hacking, just your employees poking around. Then it was hacktivists, you know, defacing websites. And then thanks to the Russian business network, cybercrime came into it. And, you know, I always thought, ooh, cyber warfare is the next big one. And obviously, no, it was nation states, you know, engaging in this, this kind of hacking activity. So now you've got some really big budget agencies that are engaged. In, and of course, the U.S. is, you know, also participating that. Yep. in that, right? And arguably, probably the very, very best at it. Yeah, arguably. <laughs> Okay. And so what does this tell us about the decision that Google made to acquire Mandiant, which was really the best response agency? No and, uh, they're just really good at that. Yep. Google actually has, you know, they have a reputation for buying companies or launching products and then just screwing it all up through neglect. Uh, but they do really have a great reputation for worrying about security. And if anybody hasn't seen the Hacking Google series on YouTube, it's worth watching. It's, you know, it's a little overdone, but it's fun. And it's Google patting itself on the back for stuff it legitimately deserves a pat on the back for. But does Mandiant fit that? How does Mandiant actually align with what Google Cloud is trying to do? Yeah, I don't think it aligns at all. I mean, I'm still scrambling for what the motivation was here, keeping in mind that the 5.5 billion acquisition fee probably doesn't end up in their financial reporting because it's immaterial. So it, it's chump change for them to spend that much money on an acquisition. And pretty good PR to say you're acquiring Mandiant because Mandiant does have a stellar reputation for their incident response capability, right? They are called in for all the big stuff and have all those people that understand that big stuff. And of course, Mandiant responsible for kind of opening everybody's eyes to Chinese hacking with the APT1 report over 10 years ago. So, but in the press release, Google said, we're doing this because we're going to have this fantastic XDR capability after we do that. And I'm going, well, no, you're not because Mandiant, which used to be called FireEye, had already sold all the FireEye technology, you know, appliances, all that to McAfee right. and half of it ended up with an investment fund in Abu Dhabi. And this was not a technology product opportunity for Google. And then in an article explaining what Google was doing, they talked about, you know, some other capability. None actually came out and said, no, we're getting them because we're going to use their incident response team for something. And you have to keep in mind, Google makes their money by doing the opposite of security, right? They collect 
data on consumers and then resell it to advertisers in the form of targeted ads. Everything Google does is about the data. So if you use a Google Chrome browser, they're going to know what you're doing with it. If you use Gmail, they're going to read all of your email, even though it's a machine doing it, hopefully not people. If you're interested in a particular thing, you'll start seeing ads if you use Google Gmail. So Google is completely untrusted by the enterprise. They hate Google with a passion. Use their tools, right? Google Maps, yeah. whatever. It's fantastic stuff, but they're not going to trust them with their data. And and they're certainly going to be uneasy about saying, why don't you come in and look through my most intimate architectural right. details to see if you can find the attacker and install all of your yeah. tools for watching for the attacker coming back. That's, yeah, they, there's an awful lot of companies that are too afraid of Google. Maybe that's why they had to end of life the that. Google search appliance that they used to sell to enterprises to index your data. It's probably the same distrust. Yeah. So... I think it's easier to predict that, as you alluded to, Mandiant will fade away and, you know, we'll be left with Google kind of acting like Cisco, right? They'll have great pipe presentations and graphics. And yes, they'll continue to do good research in security because their security team is one of the best in the world. But this current move, you can see it. If you look at the latest, I think, six issues of The New Yorker, Google has five full page ads. Nobody in security advertises and print. Cisco used to do that in the Wall Street Journal every quarter. It just doesn't happen. So they're after like the consumer and trying to build trust in their brand. And I don't think they're going to get there. All right. Okay. Well, this is a nice segue to uh, the EU's investigation of Google over its ad tech business. Uh, and Mark, the EU's charges have sort of half leaked if i can if i understand this right i'm not sure we know exactly what they say but it's pretty clear they're going after the notion that google has too many roles in the ad tech business it has platforms yeah, and, and basically is double and triple dealing that's double. It. That's exactly it. okay so that i mean the news is that the european commission is contemplating filing a case next year against Google in connection with the ad tech business. And as you say, Google has a very interesting position in the ad tech world. It runs the dominant ad exchange as well as the leading services on both the publisher and advertiser side of the market. And the accusation is that it, not surprisingly, favors its own services. Now, you know, this is the not the first time we've heard these allegations. Back in June of 2021, the commission opened an investigation into this. And self-preferencing is also alleged in the state AG case against Google that was filed in December of 2020. And in September of this year, the district court said, go ahead with that case. It's the kind of thing that multiple antitrust agencies are looking at. And in this year, in July of this year, it was reported that the U.S. Department of Justice was looking at the ad tech industry and Google's role in it. And reportedly, Justice was looking at a divestiture of parts of the Google ad tech business. And Google had apparently suggested, no, no, we'll, we'll segregate the different ad tech functions into separate divisions within the parent company. So what we know now is that the EU is prepared to go forward with the case. And 
almost certainly there's some form of negotiation going on in the background. Now, now Google might want to say, well, let's see what you got. And so wait for the statement of objections to be filed. But there's not much new here, actually, except the suggestion that the commission is prepared to go forward if it doesn't get a satisfactory deal with Google. So your guess is we could see a some kind of restructuring at a minimum of Google's internal organization and maybe more as a result of negotiations with both the U.S. and the EU and maybe the states as well. That's the leak, and we'll see what happens over the next several months. All right. This comes at a time when Facebook is hurting because Apple cut the, their ad business out from under them to some degree. Uh, yep. Google, Google is suffering some from that, is my impression, not as much. And Amazon and Apple and maybe some other companies are gaining market share against yep. uh, the, the people we've learned to, that we have to hate. That's true, but that hasn't stopped the, the FTC from pressing forward on its, its challenge to Facebook, now Meta's attempt to acquire Within, which is that maker of virtual reality apps, including the exercise app Supernatural. And over the summer, the FTC alleged that Facebook was involved in violations of the antitrust laws in, in going ahead with that merger because it was engaged in actual competition with, with Within. And in any case, there was potential competition between Facebook and Within that would be lost if the merger took place. Well, a week and a half ago, Facebook scaled that back and said, oh, no, we just, we're just worried about potential competition. Facebook the, F- the FTC scaled it back. They, they basically no, the said, that, oh, never mind. Uh, never mind about this actual competition stuff. It's just, you know, the stuff you could and would compete. Isn't with- that embarrassing? Isn't that really profoundly embarrassing for the well, FTC to have said you're competing? I mean, it is, um, one is kind of a music game and the other is fitness. And yeah, uh, it's not obvious. Like, you can see why they did it, though. I mean, an actual competition case you know, has good case law behind right. it. A potential competition case is sort of a Hail Mary pass. Yes. So, so, You've got this business that may never be a business, and we're afraid you're going to dominate the business that may never be a business by acquiring somebody who's downstream from what you do. It's just, yeah, you know, I, I, I take the Justice Department seriously. I sort of take the EU on competition seriously. But, you know, if you hear the FTC is pulled up in front of your business, instead of a tank, you kind of expect a clown car. These guys are just not well, yeah. great work. <laughs> yes, and companies take it seriously no matter what. And so Facebook moved to dismiss the case this week on October 13th. Yeah. And it's just what you'd expect, that this allegation of potential competition is just speculative. There's no evidence. And again, under the relevant Supreme Court precedent, the FTC has to show some kind of failure of competition, an oligopoly in the marketplace, and it hasn't even tried to do that. So it looks like a really uphill climb for the FTC on this one. Yeah, on this and on a lot of other stuff, they really have just not, they just not, have not been impressive. A, a kind of eyes bigger than their stomach problem is my guess. Well, we'll see how it works out. All right. So, uh, David, you mentioned that there's a new national security strategy. Yeah. This is not the cyber security strategy. This is national security strategy. Uh, I used to write those. I hated writing them and it showed because most of the time, nobody really cares what you say. Well, you know, you have to put it out. And, and <laughs> so maybe you can tell me that this national security strategy written by the White House is 
more serious than many of the national securities and homeland. Stuart, this is the one. This is the one. And now that they got okay. rid of you, the quality level is just up 40 to 60. Now, I mean, <laughs> so they have to do this every, you know, every time, every year or every administration. And I actually have had occasion to look back at all of the national security strategies issued since the Reagan administration. And it is a, it is a sobering exercise to trace the rise and fall of various, you know, century long, alleged century long trends and framings that are presented and then turn out to be 60 to 70% correct and 30 to 40%, maybe not so right. I don't know if those percentages are fair, but you look back historically, it's really easy to see where they got things right and they got things wrong. This one is framed as a battle between democracy and autocracy worldwide. It recognizes Russia as the immediate concern, which is understandable in light of the Ukraine invasion and China as the long-term pacing threat that is trying to remake, you know, the international order. Do they, do they really say pacing threat? I mean, I know that the Pentagon says that, and I think it's just complete BS. It's a way of saying they've caught up with us. Uh, you know, the other uh, euphemism us. is near peer. And I think I, I don't object to it in the sense that I think it is pretty explicit in saying these these guys are really serious. Their their technology, their military, their intelligence are all first class serious challenges to us. So they are at least near peer, and you know, hmm, it could be even a little worse in certain areas from time to time. Yeah, I think they could win. You know, fight over Taiwan. There's no certainty that the U.S. could back China down or win. Yeah, so China I guess you're China. with them in saying this is a very very serious long term threat. You know how Rob Joyce refers to Russia, you know, as a hurricane, very noisy but short term and China as climate change, which may be a transition to a second aspect of this strategy, which I'm, I wouldn't be surprised if it induces eye roll in you, and that is talking about threats. There's the usual and expected focus, at least at the strategic level, on cybersecurity and quantum-resistant encryption, critical infrastructure, but also on shared transnational challenges, most notably climate change, uh, which is referred to here as the existential threat of our time. The idea, I think, although it's not stated as explicitly as it might be, is that, you know, climate change can cause drought and famine and poverty, which delays marriage opportunities and creates angry young men in developing countries. So we know how that can cause problems. And it's certainly currently having its effect in overhauling the Arctic region, creating a lot of change there with implications for population and natural resources gained and lost and stuff like that. And there's focus on energy security and pandemics and biodefense, as you might expect in the post-COVID environment. So that's the sort of threat matrix that they put out. In terms of methods to meet all those challenges and threats, there's an emphasis on basically, I think, three things. Investing in U.S. power, building coalitions, modernizing the U.S. military, and using this somewhat fashionable concept of integrated deterrence that we saw sort of in part in the Russia-Ukraine conflict where you are, for example, declassifying intelligence for immediate effect, even if there is some risk to sources and methods. And that's a very, very delicate balance. But really trying to use all the instruments of national power in a coordinated fashion, which, you know, Stuart, you know, from sitting around the table in the Situation Room, is a very, very hard thing to do, to get everybody rowing in the same direction. Right. Everybody wants <laughs> right. to do what I, they this like. This is what I know how to do. So <laughs> let's shape a strategy around my thing, which is by far the most important <laughs> thing. Another aspect of this I found notable in the methods department is there's relative optimism about the future possibilities in public 
private partnerships or whatever newfangled term they're using for these kinds of things. It's almost like they're, I mean, it is, I think, that they're more open. And I think our country is more open actually on a bipartisan basis to what might be called industrial policy, not just, right? Chips Act. Oh, and, totally and think there. back are, even to, I remember yeah. Just sort of having a head snapping moment reading an op ed by Bill Barr during the Trump administration about how we basically need to nationalize the 5G networks. I'm overstating slightly, but it just shows you where we have come. And, and as we look at China's, you know, fairly integrated national unity and, you know, top down industrial policy, not to mention that of, say, France or other countries, we seem to be thinking we're going to need to work with government and private sector together. And I think for the companies, there is also a certain openness to it because, you know, when you look at Russia's thuggish approach, probably also at China's approach with state control of business, the rules-based international order led by the U.S. starts to look a lot better by comparison. And so when you start to see these kinds of much more disagreeable alternatives that just aren't perceived as being good for business, it may be that um, these partnerships are finding adherence on both sides of the government private sector divide. The other thing I want to say about this is it, it does seem to in this strategy recognize the intelligence community and intelligence generally as being a powerful national asset. And I thought that was a little bit unusual. I hadn't seen quite that strong an endorsement. And uh, the national intelligence strategy is I think due in about 30 days. So we'll probably see an unclassified version of that at some point. It'll be interesting to compare that to this. We're going to see a cyber strategy too. It's due. Yeah. <laughs> I think it was already due. Uh, well, sometimes the things take a little I, longer. I, you know, I, you get it, distracted yeah. by invasions. Oh, well, that was always the case because <laughs> nobody cared, right? I, I, that's always the problem with strategies. If, if you can't tie them to budget or changes in actual policy, then they just become talk fests. I mean, uh, I, okay, so just to, for the purposes of disagreeing with you, which I enjoy doing whenever possible, I mean, I, I grant you that there is a, you know, what you say is not com completely wrong, but I do think it's actually, I, I, I sometimes think, you know, national security strategy in the absence of a written articulation that has a communication value both within the vast apparatus of the federal government and people uh, who read it and do it, and then externally, you, if you under-theorize, you know, you can over-theorize your national security strategy for sure, and then get locked into some kind of, you know, intellectual vision dreamed up by an academic in an ivory tower. And if you completely abandon theorizing it, you can just be random and subject to the winds of the moment. So I'm not going to disagree with you. I think st strategy is a place where you can make hard decisions and hard policy choices, just as, frankly, yeah, writing a speech it's similar, right. is, or working on the budget. So the real question is, is there somebody who matters in the White House who actually is paying attention and weighing in on the debate. Well, it is interesting. Jake Sullivan went out and gave a speech, I think, at Georgetown right on, you know, right at the rollout of this and hit it pretty hard. And I am morally certain the IC had a pretty strong input to it. You know, they do have to put their money where their mouth is, both in terms of budget and in terms of other actions. But I mean, it, it is notable to basically say we are going to take on China. We are not going to do this constructive engagement thing, you know, and it, it looks a lot like I'm talking about those Commerce Department regs I mentioned earlier. It, you do start to get the feel of like a, a pretty strong trend of decoupling of just, you know, we're not going there. Yes, absolutely. 
absolutely. The, the only thing that's missing here, the only thing that's missing here is all these guys saying, yeah, those eight years when we were yeah. doing all the other stuff for uh, I mean, Obama, you know, yeah, we were wrong. That's not how we talk in Washington, <laughs> D.C. But times have changed, new, you know, young minds, fresh ideas, new facts, new things. And, you know, like I said, I've looked back at every national security strategy since Reagan, and they're all of them all of them, without exception, get a lot of stuff wrong. They just make predictions or they frame issues in ways that turn out to be wrong. And that's just not a reflection that all humans who work in the U.S. national security government functions are stupid. It's because this is super, super hard stuff and circumstances do change and adversaries take, you know, unexpected moves and things don't work out the way that you'd plan. No, no strategy ever survives first contact with the adversary, as they say. So it's a complex, messy world. Yes, and that's for sure. Okay, I want to go back to a topic we covered in the last episode briefly, which is PayPal saying, we're going to charge you, charge you $2,500 for misinformation. Oh, no, I'm sorry. We'll take that back. We're just going to charge you $2,500 for intolerance and hatred. And, you know, I actually was talking to somebody who said, well, I'm going to have to get off of PayPal. i am go to Venmo, which turns out is owned by PayPal. All of the... <laughs> All of the Silicon Valley companies have this, you know, weird fascination with the word hate, which well, I'll do a riff on that later if I get. Stuart uh, loves hate. Uh, <laughs> but uh, Mark. All right. All right. All right. I'm provoked. That's just such a that is such lefty smarm. You know, they all hate Alex Jones. Right. So there's nothing about hate that is uniquely right wing. But it's a code for people expressing conservative views that we really dislike, that we really hate. And so we're going to call it hate. And what's remarkable is to have ordinary firms putting forward hate as though it were a standard that you could actually define and saying we're going to punish you and charge you 2500 bucks i just that's just so astonishing they think they can take my money or anybody's money just because they disapprove of the views that are expressed and so mark actually used to work for visa and is responsible for some of visa's flexibility in this regard visa has never quite said we're going to take your money for for expressing the wrong point of view and they no, don't actually they, take people's money, but they do They do refuse to do business with, with people, uh, and that can have a big impact. So what's going on here? Is this government pressure? I don't think so. I think it's the standard practice in the payment industry to have acceptable use policies. And uh, I mean, like Gene Volokh, you know, was prompted to go look at the, this stuff because of the mistake of it, trying to extend that stuff to disinformation. And he was horrified by finding all this stuff about uh, about hate speech. So he did probably what uh, what you want to do, Stuart. He said, I'm leaving. I mean, I'm going to go find, I'm taking my money and I'm going to go to another operation. And, and my answer is good luck finding an alternative. I mean, this is the kind of thing that payment companies have been doing for well over a generation, and if they have a good reason for doing it. I mean, at least in, in part, they have legal responsibilities that they're supposed to stop money laundering and terrorist financing. They're not allowed to carry illegal internet gambling transactions. They've got mechanisms to stop child pornography and copyright violations. I mean, and the, beyond that, they all have policies that say, I just don't want to do business with you. American Express says, I don't want my services to be used by pornographers. I mean, that's perfectly legal stuff, but they don't want to have 
a business relationship with pornographers, and neither do Stripe or Amazon Pay or Square. They just don't want to do business with those services. Now, Visa and MasterCard allow legal pornography, but they they're, broke, they're getting they're getting very antsy about it. Uh, but they, they they broke ties with Pornhub recently because they got these revelations about how Pornhub didn't do much to control rape on its site. And both of the companies, Visa and Mastercard, have these broad brand protection clauses, and they reserve the right to say about any transaction, "I'm sorry, in my own judgment, that violates our need to protect our brand. You're gone." And look, some of these restrictions seem idiosyncratic, to say the least. I mean, Amazon Pay won't pay for occult services, right? So if you're a witch or a warlock, stay away. But frankly, many of them seem right. I mean, this is what Swipe says about hate speech. It says, we don't want to do business with a company that engages in, encourages, promotes, or celebrates unlawful violence towards any group based on race, religion, disability, gender, sexual orientation, national origin, or any other immutable characteristic. Now, which reputable business wants to be associated with people like that? Responsible business leaders flee contact with such people, and frankly, they're right to do so. I don't think so. Precisely that long list of stuff and pretending that transgender is an immutable characteristic. You know, this is basically, these are groups that we uh, on the left like, and you can't do things that we will later say we're encouraging. So Stuart, is uh, your view, I mean, genuine Uh, question with only a little snark behind it. I mean, you know, is your view basically there should be no limits whatsoever and all comers other than like outright illegal enterprises? So like, you know, I, you know, OFAC designated, but putting aside stuff that's flat out illegal is your view. That's it. Or is it just a quibble, as it were, with the particular standards that are applied here above and beyond the legal floor? So I'm quibbling with the particular standards because I'm not sure I want to go so far as to say <laughs> you, you, there, there's nobody, there's no way you can say there are folks I don't want to do business with. But I do think that the way in which these standards are abused, and we've seen boatloads of this in Silicon Valley, and the spread to companies that essentially control them is troubling. This is a kind of oligopoly of uh, uh, sentiment, uh, and they are abusing Do you need to get on the horn? So is the solution to, to get on the horn with Kanye West and do parlor for payments? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah, actually, there, there, there are parlor for payments, I think, and it's they're expensive, right? You've got to pay by the month. To, to well, well, Kanye just took over parlor, so you may have what you what you want from parlor. Yeah, with, with, with his spare change, probably, yeah. Yeah. But look, 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 there is a problem here, and critics are right that payment companies, they're not transparent about what they do, and they don't really provide adequate opportunity for challenging disconnection decisions, just like social media companies. And so I think the fix is roughly the same. It's transparency. If you're going to take people down from social media or from payment systems, you got to say why you did it. And you've got to provide opportunities for people to say you got it wrong. And that isn't happening yet. So, Stuart, if you want to, if you want to start a movement for transparency, sign me up. Okay. So the advantage here is there's none of the Silicon Valley, you don't regulate me 
crap from payment processors. They're all subject to federal regulation. Yeah. I, I, I have the financial degree. regulators make sure that they're transparent about what they do. Yeah, maybe. Uh, why not call them common carriers and say they, they can't discriminate without a good oh, basis? Banks, banks are already pretty clear in their responsibilities to serve the public, but they don't have to serve anybody that they don't want to serve. But I think if they're going to enforce these kinds of content moderation policies, they've got to be a whole lot more transparent about it than they've been up to now. And I think that's really the response that you're looking for from these issues. It's, a good not, something, it's not something that says, don't do it. Well, that's, I, I, that's a good start. I And uh, I'd like to see it. And I predict that we will never see it from this administration. But uh, actually, let me... Uh, Last story I want to cover in any detail. Uh, Richard, you said identity companies are a, a big part of the cybersecurity uh, industry. And Toma Bravo seems to be rolling up a whole bunch of them. Can you explain why there's this enthusiasm for identity in the field? Yeah, in part, actually, it comes back to some of the executive orders coming out of the White House because well, May of 2020. One, the White House said, hey, the federal government, all the agencies should implement a zero trust. And zero trust comes down to identity, right? And it's a simple concept. It's identify the person and the device that they're on. And then every time they want a new transaction, essentially. Every continuously. And even if they're engaged in the same transaction, but all of a sudden their connection hops over to China, you want to be able to shut them down right away, and access to whatever application. And the great thing about the zero trust architecture is the network is removed from the decision factor. Location is still there, device is still there, person is still there, but it's not you get all access just because you went into the office today versus what you're doing from home. And so that led to, you know, there there seems to be an explosion of identity services driven by cloud, mobile, the big shifts going on in technology. And on top of that, we saw a stock market crash. So the valuations of all these companies has plummeted. And Ping Identity had just gone out to be public a little less than two years ago and hadn't been faring very well. So Tomo Bravo sucked them up. And then they got SailPoint, another identity provider, just this past April. And now they're talking, oh, they've already made an offer for Fordrock, another identity provider. So all in, you know, we're talking about an $8 billion investment that they're making in identity at appreciably decreased valuations. So it's hard to tell when private equity is just playing money ball and you know, making money off of the transaction or selling the debt afterwards and servicing the debt, or if they've got a grander strategy of lumping them all together and going back to the public markets with something that could beat Okta at its own game, or Microsoft, who owns the market in identity. So I, I will make two observations. The switch to identity and zero trust means that the Hacking targets move from the company to the identity provider. So I, Tomo Bravo is making a big bet on companies who will be targets. And the far and away the most likely company to suffer from a cybersecurity incident is a company that has is trying to unify multiple recent acquisitions. So here's my prediction. Look for more and more exploits aimed precisely at the companies that are being rolled up here. Great predictions. I love it. 
All right. Okay. So let's do quick hits and uh, let everybody uh, go. This Texas social media law was stayed, and you might think that is a signal of the Supreme Court's view of it, but it's not because apparently Texas agreed to stay the uh, decision if NetChoice went ahead and just filed already for a cert. And I assume what that means is that uh, the Texas AG was worried about a lot of efforts to slow the process down, long, you know, uh, requests for extensions of time that would push the review of the decision in the Fifth Circuit into next year. It may happen anyway, but uh, so it's Supreme Court tactics at best. Second, and now Ukraine knows how Twitter feels. Elon Musk wakes up in the morning and he hates you. And Elon Musk goes to bed at night and says he loves you. So Ukraine now, after Musk said he was going to demand payment from DOD or somebody before he kept providing Starlink satellite services has now said, oh, all right, you know, I, I'm not making any money, but that's okay. We'll just keep doing it for free, which was kind of whiny. I mean, he's right. He shouldn't have to carry this forever and maybe DOD should pay for it. But, uh, you know, his original approach saying he wanted a whole bunch of money and otherwise he was going to cut off service and DOD would be responsible was, uh, you know. There's been a whole weird thing also between him and Ian Bremmer about whether and to what extent he spoke with Putin. And that there's a whole lot of weird swirl out there that I personally have not gotten to the bottom of, but it piqued my curiosity. Yeah, I did not either. And you kind of wonder whether the Chinese, who have lots and lots of leverage on the Musk, said, we don't know that you should be picking sides in a war and providing this service to a war zone where the Ukrainians are using it. So there's a lot there. And frankly, it's he could have said, I'm providing this for peaceful communications and not for war communications. And since I'm giving it away, uh, I get to make the rules. So he, as with Twitter, I think he walked into this thinking this was going to be simple and that there was a clear answer. And then it got complicated and he started looking for another clear, simple answer. And now he's stuck. So there it is. I don't entirely feel sorry for him, but I don't think that the, the macking on him is really completely fair. All right. Almost done. Google's spam uh, backdoor for Republicans. They created a mechanism by which Republican campaigns could send out their their fundraising emails and not get put into the spam box. At least that was the uh, original plan. Uh, Google got caught, and I think they really did get caught red-handed, letting somebody dump Republican but not Democratic fundraising letters into spam. And it was pretty clear that that had been going on. And the GOP fundraisers have been taking that advantage and beating Google over the head and I suspect overplaying their hand again by by saying, you should just let us send this stuff out. You shouldn't be cutting off our stuff as spam. And I'm reading between the lines. I think that the fundraisers are basically saying, even if people say they don't want to get it, you should still send it to them. And they're going to blow this if they keep that up because nobody, you know, I occasionally give money to Republicans and I give it using my least favorite email address, the one I look at least often, where I just ruthlessly turn even the people I've given money into, given money to, into spam filters because, you know, nobody wants to see this. So my advice to the Republican Party is you won that fight, don't get greedy. And last, this is 
an undercovered story that really needs a closer look. And, you know, if Nick were here, he'd be gloating over it. One of the biggest law firms in the United States, maybe the world, is Deckert. They are being sued by somebody who claims, by several people who claim that a, an investigative firm hired by a Deckert partner hacked his, their emails and then doxed the, them. The Wall Street Journal a reporter who says he was doxed says he basically became unemployable because of some of the emails he had exchanged with somebody and never acted on, but which were presented as showing that he had a low journalistic ethics, that he was willing to go into business with somebody who was a source. And I think if the allegations in these lawsuits are proven, we're going to see law enforcement action and a massive scandal around a respectable law firm potentially hire the likes of NSO, essentially, to uh, to win lawsuits. The partner has left Deckert. Maybe he's retired. So there will be a certain amount of, we didn't do it, and anyway, he's gone defense here. And I don't pretend to know all the facts, but this is these are very explosive allegations, and we're going to watch this closely. All right, Richard, David, thank you, Mark. I really appreciate it. To the audience, send your questions or comments to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Give us a rating, leave a review. We'll read it on the air if you do, especially if it's entertainingly abusive. You know, sort of like David Chris. Uh, <laughs> uh, thank you, Your Excellency. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sound Design is responsible for our music. We really appreciate it. This has been episode 426 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson.